0: Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, Dr. Jeff Johnson. Jeff is the president of Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. He also leads Grace Bible Church in the same city, and he is the proprietor, publisher, Of Free Grace Press, this is a man who wears many hats. He's he's a dear friend of mine, and I'm thankful to have him on the podcast. Welcome to City of God, Jeff.
1: Oh, and thanks for having me. This is amazing.
0: Well, I I'm that's the first time anyone has ever said that this podcast is amazing. Yeah, I
1: listen to it, so it's great to be on a podcast that I listen to.
0: You've made it. This is it. (laughs) This is it. In all seriousness, I really appreciate you you being on. You're here to uh, to speak in our residency PhD program. You did a really rich lecture on Aquinas and natural theology and natural revelation. You have a book coming out in just a few months on those topics. Um, Talk to us, just give us a quick synopsis of what you're after in that project.
1: Yeah, I've been more and more concerned about um, the the role that philosophy is playing in theology, and we hold to the sufficiency of scriptures. You and I both are very convinced that uh, uh, social justice is infringing upon the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm-hmm. As a biblical counselor, I've been concerned about uh, f- psychology coming in onto the sufficiency of Scriptures, challenging that. In the same way, I'm, I'm concerned about philosophy uh, uh, being uh, viewed as natural revelation. And so I hold a complete separate distinction between natural revelation and philosophy and make that distinction and say so that we have to begin with the knowledge of God uh, that is in the wisdom of God that through the wisdom of man that they can't come to God. So God has to be the one who reveals himself to man in order for man to know God. And that comes to us through natural and special revelation. So that book is really to, to fortify the importance of divine revelation, the sufficiency of scriptures as our only trustworthy source of the knowledge of God.
0: It's a really helpful uh, subject and point that you're making, because a lot of times in our circles, strong conservative circles, you'll hear people talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, which is true. I mean, keep talking about it, right? You and I both do, of course. But we do need to make sure that we have a case for and a place for natural revelation authoritatively, and as you say in your book, which I've endorsed, immediately, immediately, revealing God. Talk to me about the use of that term immediately with regard to true natural revelation.
1: Yeah. There, Just as there's attributes of God, there's attributes of scriptures, and there's attributes of natural revelation. And most of those attributes can be seen in Psalm 19, where that God has revealed himself universally to all men, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of if they're educated or uneducated. And this knowledge doesn't come through parenting or teaching or instruction, it comes from God Himself. Mm -hmm. And this knowledge is something that God is a very effective communicator, and He can get His points across because He made us in His image, He's made us capable of immediately seeing Him in creation. Mm -hmm. And so this is immediate awareness that all men have, and they can't even suppress. They can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but that truth naturally wants to keep coming up, and so they're living in guilt every time they reject what they know to be true.
0: One of the points you brought out is that when we affirm the noetic effects of the fall, we're not denying what you were just talking about. In other words, yes, our mind is fallen, but yet the unbeliever in in a fallen state yeah. can still, like you were right. just talking about, immediately and clearly recognize that there is a God.
1: Right. That's why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So people know there's a God, but they don't fear God. They they know there's a God, but they're not thankful. They don't worship God because they don't like God. And so it's not that natural revelation is not effective or clear or authoritative or infallible. It's the fact that man, he knows it's true, but that's what makes him foolish is that he doesn't like what he knows to be true. Thus, he rejects it or he runs from it or he suppresses it. And that's what makes man, natural man, irrational.
0: Would you say then that it is appropriate to conclude that the natural man's response to natural revelation is basically the same as his natural response to special revelation.
1: That's right. He's going to suppress it. He's going to run from it. The first sin in Romans 1 is knowing there's a God, but just not thinking God. Mm -hmm. And it's a slight little sin that we all commit. I've done that with my wife. My wife got onto me once and says, Jeff, you just don't seem to think about me anymore. I'm like, hey, I'm making a living. I'm loving you. I'm not cheating on you. I'm doing all this stuff for you. Mm -hmm. I've not thought one bad thought about you. She goes, yeah, but you're just not thinking about me. Mm -hmm. And she pricked my conscience because I was so busy writing or so busy with other things that I didn't intend not to think about her. It just happened. And she gave me a corrective, and I apologized. But that's how easy it is to run from God. They know God. They know he's the provider. But man just doesn't acknowledge him, doesn't thank him, and that that leads down a downward spiral to all kinds of immorality.
0: It corrects our, our sense that if we would just get people the truth, put it in front of them, they would all fall at its feet. Uh, you, you hear, you'll hear a version of this with regard to how people think about ministry and evangelism today. If we could just get Jesus and the apostles back and, and they would do the witnessing, mm-hmm. the heavy hitters of history— then the church would would be finally bringing people in the way we so desire that to happen. We're we're glad to have anybody want to come who will come. We know that everybody should receive Jesus, but the depravity of the human heart, it's not stronger than God by any stretch,
1: but it's a strong force. That's right. That's right. The truth itself is a convicting. Two plus two equals four is authoritative, Mm. and that's why the social justice movement doesn't like authority in any place it sees. It, it wants to say, "Hey, that's too binding. It's too authoritative. Words need to be more fluid and flexible." But it, it's convicting because it's true. The Word of God is convicting because it's true. Natural revelation is convicting because it's true, and you can't deny it. But you can, you can deny it, but you're you're denying that which is authoritative, and and you're denying that which in your heart is saying, "You you're lying to yourself," mm-hmm. and that's why the simplest. Christian, the, the, the housewife or the new believer who's 12 years old, can faithfully witness to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and it be effective because there's authority in what's being said. Hmm. And natural man knows that, though he may not like it. And the challenges for churches is they want to—because to, natural man doesn't want that and they want to build a church, they want to give man what they want, so they have to uh, pare down or uh, water down the truth— in order to accommodate man's conscience or man, what man like to hear and what man likes to hear is that god loves you and wants to give you your best life and so that's the message of churches but it's not a message that's going to save them mm. so though man doesn't want to hear god and the gospel and that salvation is about full repentance and surrender and you have to love god above your own self and take up your cross daily that's not the message the once lord wants to hear the world wants to hear but it's the message they need, and it's true, and it's authoritative.
0: That's right. That's well said. We're not preaching to people what they want to hear. If we are doing that, though we don't know it, the whole enterprise is corrupted. That's right. And yet, it's, a, it's truly shocking just how many evangelical churches there are that adopt exactly that philosophy and method. Yeah.
1: We speak the truth in law, but the truth we do speak. And if you water down the truth in love, you don't love. You cease to love if you don't speak the truth. And so the truth can be hard to hear because it, it's in opposition to man's autonomy. It's opposition to what man wants. It's, it puts God's glory above man's needs, mm-hmm. and that's a message that man doesn't like. He, he really wants God to be a servant to man rather than a man a servant to God. Mm-hmm.
0: Another point you made in your talk here at Midwestern Seminary Today is that when we're talking about the Trinity, so we're moving subjects here, we don't overemphasize imminence at the expense of transcendence or flipping it, transcendence at the expense of imminence. We really hold these two things together all right, the time, right. uh, every chance we get. Right. Do I have you accurately there?
1: That's right. That's right. There's, in philosophy, there's been two dilemmas that no one can answer, which is ultimate, the one or the many, is God. Uh, absolute or is he personal? And all systematic theology books struggle about God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Is is God's transcendent attributes, his imminent attributes, is he absolute or is he personal? And it's hard to reconcile those two concepts. And many times one or the other is going to be compromised. Open theism compromises God's transcendence and his sovereignty. And then s- some scholars and their h- desire to put God as this ultimate transcendent being, they make them impersonable and unrelatable and apathetic, and I think both are damaging and destructive. And The only way to rescue ourselves from two extremes is the Scripture's understanding of the Trinity, that you can have both ands, and in the Godhead, you have one and many that are both ultimately ultimate, Uh, and God is three and he's one. He's simple and he's complex, mm-hmm. and you have to have both. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise something, some, some form of compromise is going to take place of the doctrine of God as presented in Scripture.
0: Yeah, it's become common to emphasize the unity of God today, the oneness of God. That's more what I hear at least some theologians talking about and emphasizing, and again, there's no, there's no tension here. This is part of the beauty mm-hmm. of the Trinity. There's mm-hmm. not a tension. There's a tension in so much of life when we have two different things we have to balance, right. and we feel caught in the middle. We're not caught in the middle in theological terms between the unity and trans, the yeah. unity and 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 uh, and and threeness of God. Uh, we actually bring them together and always keep them together. But there are going to be problems that result if we so emphasize the oneness, we will lose sight of the threeness. We'll get scared of the threeness when the very term Trinity, fascinatingly. Is a term that describes threeness. Both.
1: That's right. Augustine said there's unity and complexity, and complexity and the unity in the Godhead, and, he, and he, he rightly kept those tensions in balance, which allows for God to be one and three. And that doesn't may make sense to us, but ultimately, if there's not a God who's one and three, we can't make sense of this diverse universe that has uh, common ground. There's a, you know the university means there's something in common to the diversity. And if it's just all diversity, then we get into postmodernism that there's no connection to anything. There's everything just fragmented. Mm-hmm. And that leads to uh, no absolutes or no uh, authority in anything. Or if we go the o- other direction, we're going to get uh, to a God who's so uh, impersonal and tr- uh, transcendent, he becomes pantheistic or deistic, and he's unrelatable. And that's also pretty dangerous.
0: On one side lies Islam. On the other side lies postmodern right. chaos. Right, right, without real hope on either side. That's why
1: we need the scriptures. We have to have the scriptures to give us the Trinity, so that we can make sense of this world.
0: And scripture alone is our is our sufficient authority. Just yes. confessing that today, though, because of some of those third way options you were mentioning right. just a few minutes ago puts you in an interesting place, and yet we need to confess afresh. We who love the the Reformation, as you and I both very much do, and especially love the Bible that drove the Reformation, have to confess that there's no authority that comes above Scripture, and there's no authority that is just a little bit tiny below Scripture, and there's no authority that is right beside Scripture. Right. It's Scripture.
1: Once you add to that, or once you put... Um natural theology of philosophy as a grid to understand Scripture, then all of a sudden you're subjugating Scripture to a philosophy of man. And that's that's, that's what I'm seeing, and that's what's uh, scary to me. And so I, we have to—it's not just the authority of Scripture, it's just the sufficiency of Scripture. And if we begin to deny the sufficiency of Scripture, it, we are denying the authority of Scripture mm-hmm. before it's over.
0: That's very well said. It's crazy how the functional outworking of doctrine can actually be where the doctrine is compromised you can be totally good on paper with the doctrine but what it's not that your technical doctrine doesn't matter right but it also matters equally what the doctrine is that you actually put to work that's
1: right I, i'm i'm just thinking this silly illustration about how a lot of uh, i hold to the regular principle of worship where mm-hmm. the scripture alone tells us how to worship god and what Amen. the elements of worship but I can see how a lot of churches, where your grandma comes up and says, "Hey, pastor, you care if my grandson, who's got the skit, you care if he performs that?" <laughs> and you know, and you haven't thought through the issues, and you're thinking about poor grandma, who we all love, and his, her, his grandson. I'm sure the skit's encouraging, and it'll be a blessing to him. And and it, you just w- real quickly make this sudden decision. Yeah, I don't see how it hurt. And your 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 practice begins to basically affect your theology and undermine your theology, but you never intended for that to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's very easy for those functional concerns. You, you've you mentioned social justice several times. I, I've called it wokeness. You have a book coming out on this. I have a book coming out on this, uh, God Allowing. It's very easy for those concerns, for example, of unity or diversity or justice, other terms we could mention, to end up very much influencing and even changing, revising your
1: your doctrine. It's happening all the time. It, it, uh, the social justice movement has different definitions to the biblical definition of words that we use in common, like justice, equality. We all want to be uh, impartial, and we don't want to be racist. The Bible condemns that. So we're using same language, but with different definitions. And then once we buy into the system or accept their definitions, then we're imposing those definitions on Scripture, and that's allowing a man-made philosophy to be an interpreted grid to our understanding of Scripture's which undermines its authority and sufficiency. This is
0: one of the really important points of the presuppositional system as developed by Cornelius Van Til and others. Um, we're, we're both in that camp. Um, and it, it's really important that we understand thought, not just as isolated collections of beliefs, views, ideologies, but as systems. Right. Talk to me about how you try to see systems wherever you can in order to answer them.
1: Right. Well, everything we believe can be reduced to another question, and that question can be reduced to another question. And it comes down to three ultimate questions that everything that we think, believe, can be reduced to. And that is, what is ultimate? Uh, How do we know what we know? And who decides what's right and wrong? And those three questions have one common answer, God. He's the authority. He tells us how, what he's the revelation? He's the authority on what we know mm-hmm. and why we know it, and he tells us what's right and wrong. But all other philosophies uh, mess those three questions up, and social justice is built upon atheism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Modern day psychology is built on atheism, by the way, mm-hmm. and atheism says there's no God. Therefore, if God's not uh, there, then he's not the authority of the revelation of what we know, why we know what we know. And then he's not the one who tells us what's right and wrong. We're left with no God to figure this out on our own. It leads to relativism. It leads to some type of, uh, of, basically, it leads to um, postmodernism. Mm-hmm. It leads to once you get rid of God, you get rid of God of the foundation of authority, and then we're all left as our own authority. Uh, and there's a belief called um, existentialism where meaning comes after existence. I get to determine my own meaning. If I want to think that I'm a girl, I can be a girl. Who's to say otherwise? Mm -hmm. But if we believe in a God, then God's the one who tells me who I am and how I'm to behave and how I'm to live. And so uh, social justice undermines the very foundation of theism or the biblical worldview. And so when we evaluate their definitions of justice and equality, it's more important than that we just go, okay, well, what do they mean by that? we got to go back down to—we have to ask, why are they saying that? What's the ultimate foundation of their beliefs? And if we follow the chain uh, of their thinking, it goes to atheism. Mm-hmm. And so it's, a, it's an antithetical worldview to the worldview that we hold to as Christians.
0: It's fascinating because we're in a time of not what we could call soft postmodernity, but as Pluck Rose and Lindsay show, we're in a time of— Hard postmodernity, the the soft postmodern era was twenty years ago. It's still here, yeah. but it's the one where you live and let live. Everybody has their own truth. Right, my right. truth. That's still out there, but it's all hardened. It, it it's not that actually there is objective and absolute truth for the woke, mm-hmm. uh, for for those who would promote atheistic social justice. They don't. They haven't started believing in some higher standard of revelation, but now they're acting as if. Their, their body of thought is authoritative. That's
1: right. They become activists. They, they, it's fine for you to believe what you want to believe. Let me believe what I want to believe. Now it's not fine mm-hmm. for you to be a Christian because your Christianity is still authoritative and you're imposing that even if you're not preaching to me, your lifestyle is honored, is convicting me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, a, a desire to run from God. And wherever there's truth, there's conviction. And so if there's Christians are living... Uh, the traditional life that God, uh, the values that God has laid out in Scripture, that alone will keep them convicted, and so they they have to uh, fight God for the, because of their guilty conscience, and so they have to be an activist, and so you have to be a relativist. I mean, it's it's a self contradictory system, right? It's, right. It's it, there. You can believe what you want to believe, as long as you don't believe in absolutes, and then you're the ultimate absolutely evil. No pun intended. <laughs>
0: But the funny thing is that I think a lot of people in the church are still still dealing with postmodernity and the broader culture as if the soft form yeah. predominates. Again, it's still out there. There's plenty right, of it. Right, right. But the hard form is actually ascendant, yes. and it's really swallowing up, for example, on many secular campuses across America, right. the West, the soft form. Yeah. It's, it's eating it up. It's eating it alive.
1: Yeah. yeah, the soft form is don't be judgmental. Christian's like, hey, don't judge me. I don't want to be judgmental. So that's the soft form. Now it's, it's getting where if we don't embrace mm-hmm. the deviant lifestyles, we're, the, we're actually the ones that are yes. uh, unloving. They've turned love upside down and made good into evil and evil into good. That's
0: exactly right. Well, we have just a few more minutes. Um, you, you're a man, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, who wears a lot of hats how did it come to be? What's the short form of the story that, uh, that led you to be a local church pastor of a strong and growing local church, uh, a seminary in Conway, Arkansas, and a publishing? Talk to me about how all that came to be. Uh,
1: it, it, without sounding um, prideful here, it's God. Mm-hmm. And I say, why we say that's prideful, but we God is because it's, it's, it's almost more prideful to say, hey, God is blessing the ministry. And that sounds like, how is God favoring you? I don't know. But he, He's blessing the ministry, and I'm just riding their wave. And so, God is the answer to, to why there's such encouragement in Conway, Arkansas, right now with the church, the growth of the church, the, the healthiness of our church. Uh, we're, we've grown, we've doubled in size in the last year, it seems. The seminary is growing, uh, the publishing company is growing and i'm convinced that god is with us and he's got a, a greater work that's bigger than me and i just get to be a part of it i get to 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 watch what god's doing and i'm not actually doing much but enjoying the benefits of being a part of it mm-hmm. uh, so it's 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 really um uh, enjoyable ministry to be a part of
0: it feels like two things are happening number one it feels like there's a lot of activity, strong, sound doctrine activity in Arkansas right now. I want you to comment on that. Secondly, it feels like beyond Arkansas, there's just a real hunger, even in evil days like these, for strong biblical preaching and teaching. Can yeah. you comment on those two yeah. trends if yeah, I I'm think,
1: right? I think a lot of people are compromising, and God's sheep are looking for men that are not going to compromise. There'll be strong voices, it's speak it to truth in love, but they're not afraid to speak the truth. And they, they have their, their positions and they're not moving from their positions. And I, I think that's God's people are looking for that because the word of God is that. It's a rock, it's, it's stable. It says the same thing as said for the last 2,000 years. It hasn't changed. Amen. And we need men. I want to raise up men, I want to invest in young men and qualified men, godly men. Men that want to plant churches and serve the kingdom and don't want to build a kingdom around their name, around themselves. Men that God's got a hold of. That's the men I want to be a part of and to train and invest my life in. And the men that have conviction, have humility and love. And that's what I was thinking, oh, and uh, interrupting myself here, but I was thinking as I was driving over here, why am I here lecturing at Spurgeon's Library, mm. it's a pretty prestigious thing. I, I was thinking to myself, I, I shouldn't be here because I started in a mobile home, preaching to ten people mm. uh, in the woods. I said, "That's where I belong. That's that's my identity. Mm. I don't I don't belong in with men like you. I, I'm not. That's not who I should be." And I said, "But the Lord's not impressed with these things. Well, He's impressed with humble, contrite heart, mm. and, and that's what I want. I want to impress God. I want." I want to live my life in a way that pleases the Lord. At the end of the day, I want, I want God to be, say, proud of me. I have nothing to present God but Jesus Christ. I have nothing that I'm proud of. And at the great day, I'm going to go, here, here's the Lord Jesus. Look at him. Uh, please don't look at me because I'd, I'd offer you nothing. Hmm. But what, what can I offer him? Hopefully, it's a humble heart. And that's the type of man— that I pray that God brings to our seminary in Conway and the men that God brings you here and that we can train godly men who love the Lord that, are, that know the Bible is the Word of God and they're ready to die for it.
0: Amen. Just in closing here, you're making me think about that balance of humility and strength, how that is what the, the godly men of Scripture, not perfect, but over and over again are and how the godly men in history, over and over again, are—they—they yeah. they are men who are humble by God's grace, and so they know that they are not the strong man. The strong man is Christ Jesus. Right. And yet they don't stop there. And the truth about manhood doesn't stop there. It is never—it never, uh, never changes—that we are the weak one, and God is the strong That's one. Right. That's right. It's always true. And yet. There is tremendous strength, ironically, in recognizing that I'm not strong, but God is strong
1: in me. That's right. If, if when I preach, I have sometimes imagined this when I get up behind the pulpit. I imagine God behind me. Mm. And that God is, if I'm preaching truth, now that's the big if. Mm-hmm. If I'm preaching truth faithfully and accurately, and not the message of Joseph Johnson, but if I'm preaching the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, well, it doesn't matter what man says. God is behind me. He's standing behind me. I am nothing, but God is standing behind me. And that's where the confidence, that's where the strength, that's where the boldness. We can go into the the front lines of the battle and stand strong because I know I'm on the right side. I know God is behind me. In fact, I actually want to be behind God, tell you the truth, and he be in front of me. But if I go out on the front lines, I know I really believe God has even if it means death, I know God has my back, and I'm on the right side of history. I'm on God's side, mm-hmm. and that's where the boldness needs to come from.
0: Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. The boldness there is world-defying. It is not a slave to fear. Uh, it doesn't fear the world, fundamentally. We, we fear God in a, in a reverential, adoptive mm-hmm. sense, um, but, but we are not at all fearing the world, fearing the culture,
1: fearing any man. Yeah, amen. Because in the end, here you have God watching what we say, and we have the world watching what we say. Who are we more concerned about? Mm-hmm. And I really would be happier for man to hate me than for God to be displeased with what I'm saying.
0: Amen. Wow. Well, this has been, this has been a joy. Thank you for being on the podcast with me, and I hope you'll I hope come back. Uh, sometime soon.
1: I appreciate your friendship. It means a lot to me.
0: You too, brother. God bless you. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.